0: Well, thanks for coming. The full title of my talk is not just Charles V. He was a Holy Roman Emperor. Charles V, the man who saved Christendom. He was a small man with pinched adenoidal features, a big lower lip, and an ugly underslung jaw, which caused him to speak with difficulty all his life. He was born and grew up at Ghent, in Belgium. And until he was 17, he knew no languages but Belgium's French and Flemish, which is a variant of Dutch. He became king of Spain without knowing a word of Spanish. His mother, Juana the Mad, was insane and lived by choice in the dark, surrounded by dirt and squalor. But he was the grandson of the great Queen Isabel the Catholic of Spain, who never knew him. And he was all that she could ever hope for and dreamed of in a son. Her only son had died tragically at 18. Charles became the Holy Roman Emperor, heir to the emperor's ancient duty of protecting Christendom from the infidel without and the heretic within. He defied the rebel Martin Luther face to face at Worms in Germany in 1521. To Luther he spoke for a thousand years of Christendom, more than any other man of his troubled time. More than any pope, more than any saint, he saved Christendom. His name was Charles, the fifth emperor of that name. To Luther, who feared no man, he must have appeared ten feet tall. As Carlos Quinto, he remained a national hero of Spain, his body and statue in the Spanish royal mausoleum at El Escorial. He is my subject today. His father, Philip the Handsome, was a man without morals or charity. Philip died when the boy Charles was only four, leaving him, in effect, an orphan. But his Aunt, aunt Margaret then became his mother. She was Charles's godmother, which made her responsibility for him all the clearer. She was the daughter of the Holy Roman Emperor, Maximilian Habsburg. She is one of the most refreshing personalities in the whole history of European royalty. Margaret was small, golden-haired with contrasting brown eyes and a captivating, infectious smile. As a young woman, she passionately loved two husbands, one of them Queen Isabel's only son Juan, the other Prince Philibert of Savoy in Italy. Both of them died tragically in the flower of their youth. Margaret was so stable and so resilient that she recovered completely from both tragedies, but after them she would never consider marriage again. The two marriages produced only one child, who was born dead. Margaret's love fixed on the ugly little boy and made him great. Her love, like that of every good mother, gave Charles a reason to live and a reason to die beyond himself. As Charles found a second mother, he also found a second father, his teacher, Adrian Dado, who later became pope, the last pope to take no name but his own. He was a Dutchman, the last non-Italian pope before John Paul the Great, Adrian VI, a virtuous and heroic soul whom Italy scorned. Christendom in the 16th century was not worthy of Pope Adrian VI. He raised Charles V as a man ready to give his life for Christ. So Charles was so fortunate as to gain second parents who were more to him than his real parents could ever have been. When Charles' father Philip died and young Charles became his heir, when Isabel prophetically said, as she looked at the orphan heir with the premonition of his destiny, the lot falls on Matthias. Matthias was the last of the apostles, chosen by lot to replace the traitor Judas Iscariot. Charles was to follow in Matthias' footsteps. Charles was king of Spain when Cortes conquered Aztec Mexico and stopped its horrendous human sacrifice. He was king of Spain when Magellan and his men first sailed around the world, which Christ had told his disciples to penetrate to the end. Charles and his men did exactly that. In January 1515, at the request of the States General of the Low Countries, supported by a large subsidy, and encouraged by William de Croix, Lord of Chevres, Emperor Maximilian agreed to let young Charles be declared ruler of the Low Countries as an adult, though he had not yet reached his 15th birthday. This reputable action was taken by Emperor Maximilian behind his daughter's back and without her knowledge. The news of King Ferdinand's death came to young Charles in February 1516, three weeks before his sixteenth birthday. After hesitating until almost the last moment, since he favored Charles' younger brother, his namesake, who had been born and grew up in Spain, King Ferdinand named Charles his heir. Immediately, young Charles began to read and study books and documents to prepare himself for his new duties. Perhaps at the suggestion of Margaret to give Charles more time to grow up, he did not leave Flanders, that's Belgium, the only home he had ever known, until mid-September 1517, a year and a half later. Somehow his gorgeously accoutred ships lost their way on the north coast of Spain, landing not at the commodious Castilian port of Santander, but at a little cove on the coast of Asturias, where perched the Russian phil- fishing village of Tazones, whose people had no idea what the foreign fleet was and flew to arms against invasion. Neither horses, mules, nor wagons were to be had in quantity on that rock-bound coast. Charles and his party had to wait a week for them and still did not have enough. Forlornly, they plodded through the precipitous terrain where Pelayo had stood against the Muslim world empire 800 years before. Charles could not speak a word of Spanish, nor could most of the people with him. Charles fell ill and had to soften the way to recover. It was November before he reached Tordesillas, where King Ferdinand had shut up Charles' mother, Juana, when her insanity became evident to all Spain. Juana feared the day and the light. Like. She lived by choice in dirt and squalor. Charles entered the dark room where his mother crouched with feelings which may barely be imagined. When one of his party brought a light, seeing that Juana did not like it, he waded away. Only Chevre was with him. Charles assured Juana that he would govern well in her name. If she still remembered the French she had learned at her late husband's court, she understood him, but said no word. Four days later, the great Cardinal Cisneros, who had held Spain together for Charles during the two and a half years since Ferdinand's death, died at the age of 81, a very great age for those times. Charles, who knew little of these narrows, had not intended to continue him in office at at his advanced age, but, contrary to later hostile reports, had not refused to see him or to thank him for his services. He had simply and understandably given priority to seeing his mother and assuring himself with his own eyes that she was indeed unfit to govern before he took the crown of Spain for himself. But then, yielding to Chevre, who he had just made prime minister of Spain, he nominated Guillaume de Croix, Chevre's boy nephew, to succeed his as Archbishop of Toledo and Primate of Spain, the highest church office in Spain. To the fury of the Spaniards, who had loved and greatly respected this man, these who had reformed the church in Spain so thoroughly that Luther's heresy, which fed on church corruption, could never gain a foothold there. Emperor Maximilian died January 12, 12, 1519. When the news of his death reached Rome, Pope Leo X took an action which starkly reveals how deeply the Renaissance popes had sunk into the swamp of political intrigue at the expense of the reputation and the good of the church. He directed his saintly legate in Germany, Cardinal Kajdan, just three months after his bruising encounter with Luther, which I described in my lecture in February on the Protestant revolt, to oppose Charles as emperor and to support the candidacy of one of three alternatives. Elector Frederick of Saxony, the protector of Luther, elected Joachim of Brandenburg, or King Sigismund I of Poland. The reason for this appears to have been the long-standing policy of the Popes that the Holy Roman Emperor, whose jurisdiction included much of northern Italy, should not also rule the Kingdom of Naples in southern Italy, which for some 50 years had been attached to the Spanish crown. Reasonable though this policy had been in prior circumstances, for the Pope now to favor Luther's protector, Frederick of Saxony, over the uncompromising Catholic Charles was folly. A few days later, Pope Leo concluded that his alternative candidates could not win, that only King Francis I of France might be able to overcome the Habsburg influence. He told his legate in France to promise King Francis his full support, while repeating that he favored the election of anyone other than Charles. Meanwhile, the Pope, in his capacity as temporal lord of the papacy, had negotiated treaties of alliance with both monarchs. In early March, Pope Leo authorized King Francis I to promise the Archbishops of Cologne and Trier cardinals' hats if they would vote for King Francis as emperor, and himself promised to make the Archbishop of Mainz permanently papal legate in Germany if he voted for Francis. The three archbishops were all among the seven imperial electors. When pressure was added to these blandishments in early April, the archbishops backed away from the Pope. and By mid-April, Leo realized that he could not prevent the election of Charles as emperor. German national feeling was aroused against papal and French interference in the imperial election, and support for Charles at all levels in the empire was rapidly growing. At this time, Charles's homeland of Flanders, that's Belgium, Uh, was part of the Holy Roman Empire. So despite his Spanish blood, Charles was looked upon as a native son. After a last flurry of messages to Elector Frederick of Saxony, urging him to become a candidate, Luther or no Luther, which received no response. In the formal withdrawal of King Francis I from the contest, it was all over. On June 29, 1519, at the very moment of his disputation at Leipzig uh, with Eck, uh, they, 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 the the disputation at Leipzig of Eck with Karlstadt and Luther, which I described to you in my lecture on the partisan revolt. Charles was elected to Holy Roman Empire at Frankfurt with the votes and support of all the electors except Joachim of Brandenburg, and the reluctant consent of Pope Leo X, whose ill-starred papacy Charles was to save. When this happened, Charles was only 19 years old by such devious and unworthy means, was the greatest holder of an emperor since Charlemagne made the guardian of a Christendom about to be assaulted as never before and cloven in two by the partisan revolt. News of his election as emperor reached young Charles of Spain in Barcelona on July 6. He decided at once to leave Spain as soon as possible, both for his imperial coronation in Germany and to familiarize himself firsthand with Germany, a land which he'd never visited. Probably he knew enough about Germany and its divisions to realize that they could go from bad to worse very quickly without the imperial presence and active influence. But Charles never considered staying in Germany or Flanders permanently, though Flanders was his childhood home. Spain was the world's leading power then with an expanding overseas empire that Magellan's round-the-world voyage, which Charles commissioned, um, was about to increase by a whole new order of magnitude, and he was its king. Thanks to the work of Isabel and Ferdinand, Spain, in contrast to Germany, was relatively united, and equally to the point in this troubled hour of Christendom, was passionately and loyally Catholic. My old friend Fritz Wilhelmsen used to speak about people being lyrically Catholic, and that's the way the Spanish were in those days. But most of the Spanish did not yet really trust their young king. He was too foreign, appeared too immature. If you've seen pictures of him, you know what he looks like. He did not look very (laughs) inspired. And he still did not speak their language well. He seemed too much a captive of his alien entourage. They expected his foreign advisors to get him away and keep him away, using Spain as a milch cow for their own greed and political ambitions. On July 12, Charles' new chancellor, Mercurino Gattinara, whom his Aunt Margaret had brought from Savoy in Italy with the highest recommendation, presented him with a memorandum on his prospects and duties as the temporal head of Christendom, stressing the importance of unifying Christendom under his leadership and urging that he take care not to entrust too much power in Spain or Germany to fellow natives of the Low Countries. On the Emperor and the Pope, Chancellor Gatineau said, quote, The duty was imposed on of extirpating all errors among Christian peoples, of establishing universal peace, of un- undertaking a general crusade against the Turks, and of bringing all things into better order and condition. In a war and in peace, these two powers, the empire and the papacy, must be indissolubly indissolubly bound together and by their unity hold out to all true believers the assurance of a better future, end quote. At the end of October 1519, Charles announced that he would leave Spain for Germany the following march to be crowned emperor and to hold a Diet. The Diet was an assembly of the principal lay and clerical dignitaries of the Holy Roman Emperor. In February 1520, he summoned the Cortes, that's the parliament, of Castile to meet at Santiago de Compostela to vote funds for his support. Since Santiago de Compostela is located far up in the mountains of Galicia, in the northwestern corner of Spain, to travel there in winter would be very difficult, expensive, and time-consuming. No Cortes in the history of Castile had ever been held in Santiago de Compostela. The reason for holding it there was simply that sailing from the north Galician port of La Coruña was the quickest way to reach England where Charles was going to meet King Henry VIII of England on his way to Germany. Resolved to get his requested appropriation with a minimum of delay and to defer all considerations of Spanish local problems until his return, Charles prohibited the towns from sending anyone to San Diego de Compostela to petition him, except... except for members of the Cortes after a fierce debate in which daggers were drawn the city council of Toledo the ancient capital of Spain and the seat of the church primate nevertheless sent four petitions to San Diego de Compostela Charles was in Valladolid on his way to San Diego de Compostela when Toledo's defiant petitioners confronted him he refused to see them all the Spanish frustrations with and suspicions of their young foreign-born sovereign suddenly boiled up and exploded. Thousands of armed men marched in the streets. Charles fled the city, accompanied by Sheriff and his bodyguard. The guard held open a gate for him while he galloped away almost alone in, into the night and a pouring rainstorm riding for Tordesillas, 19 miles away. At the next stop beyond Tordesillas, Charles agreed to speak with the petitioners, but only to shide them for disobedience. On March 31st, he opened the Cortes at San Diego de Compostela with an address read by the Bishop of Palencia, declaring that Spain was and would remain, quote, the garden of his pleasures, his fortress for defense, his power for attack, his treasure, his sword, his mount, and his seat, end quote but he explained that he had to leave now to accept the imperial crown and needed the money he had requested to meet his new responsibilities to christen him as emperor in order to ward off great evils from our Christian religion a probable reference to the rise of Luther and his heresy and to coordinate action against the infidel he added some remarks in Spanish showing his progress in mastering the language and pledged to return in three years and to appoint no more foreigners to office in Spain. He was to return in the allotted time and maintain his primary residence in Spain for the rest of his life, dying there in the monastery of on years later. On Palm Sunday, April 1st, he ordered the Toledo Petitioners out of San Diego to Compostela. When this news arrived in Toledo, the proud ancient capital of Spain rose in rebellion against Charles in the name of the king, the queen, and of the community, end quote. By the queen they meant poor insane Juana. The reference to the king, her son, expressed their hope to persuade her to force Charles to change his government to their liking. The rebels took control of Toledo and its castle. Its castle was the most impregnable in Spain and all Europe which was to hold out for two months in 1936 against a full panoply of modern warfare, artillery, flaming gasoline, aerial bombardment, and two and a half tons of TNT exploded in an underground mine. At the quartz, Childs faced continuing dogged opposition devoting the funds he had requested. He gradually broke down the opposition with bribes and promises of public office, but this took so much time that he had to move the Cortes to La Coruña, his intended port of departure. Only there did he finally obtain a plurality of the votes of 16 cities of Castile, eight voting for the subsidy, five against, with one divided and two extensions. Charles then announced to the Cortes that his old teacher, Adrian would would govern Spain in his absence. This seemed a breach of his promise to appoint no more foreigners to public office, though it was not a permanent appointment, and it had probably been decided before he made the pledge. Few were prepared to listen to any recounting of Adrian's many virtues, nor was Charles in any mood to make concessions after he heard of the revolt in Toledo. As the world and Martin Luther were to find out, Emperor Charles V, whatever he might look like, was not a man to be pushed around. He departed from La Coruña um, on May 20th in a cloud of anger and mutual recrimination and ill augury for his future as King of Spain and Emperor of Christendom. Charles' haste to leave Spain at this critical juncture was not due so much to his impending coronation, which did not take place until October, but because he believed it essential to stop in England on the way to Germany, and to confer there with England's King Henry VIII and Henry's wife, Charles's Aunt Catherine, Queen Isabel's youngest daughter, called by the English for her father's home country, Catherine of Aragon. Before Henry went to France for a much heralded meeting with his King Francis I on what came to be known as the Field of the Cloth of Gold. Catherine and Isabel are both subjects for later lectures in this series. Francis' hostility to Charles had been evident in his unsuccessful attempt to prevent his election as emperor. The two men were to be enemies all their lives. An alliance between France and England could pose a major threat to Charles. The The date of the meeting between Henry and Francis was already set. Charles thought that he had to get to England before it. Henry was flattered by the visit and Catherine was delighted to see her young nephew who now held the highest temporal office in Christendom. Charles and his advisers regarded the meeting as a diplomatic success. Meanwhile, behind him, the spark from Toledo had fired a conflagration throughout Spain. The Cortes deputies who had voted the funds Charles requested found their property and even their lives threatened. This is one of the greatest rebellions in Spanish history. Adrian Didler did his best, but this was a crisis that no foreigner, however just and holy, could subdue. Charles' retention of authority in Spain, and through that, considering the condition of Germany, riven by Martin Luther's heresy, his whole future depended on the loyalty and energy of one man, Inigo Vasco, Constable of Castile. Though this was primarily a revolt of townsmen. Many of the nobles were sympathetic, and few were willing to risk their lives and property in a fight to the finish with an aroused populace based on strong, defended walled cities. In political Spain, there has always been a tendency to anarchy, crossing with a tradition of intensely personal loyalty to the monarch. Queen Isabel could walk into the rebellious city of Segovia with only two companions and be expected to instantly obeyed. as she was. Charles had not yet been able to arouse any such loyalty to his person, but there was still the tradition of loyalty to the royal office, which Queen Isabel had done so much to strengthen. Without a king or queen to serve, the rebels would ultimately be vulnerable to the pressure of that tradition. Consequently, the more perceptive among them realized from the beginning that they had to have the sanction, or appear to have the sanction, of insane Queen Iwana for their rebellion while convincing the people that she was not so mentally ill as had been said. Tordesillas, where Juana was confined, joined the rebellion in August, and rebel leader Juan de Padilla met with Juana, saying that the rebels would serve and defend her. She seemed to accept their fealty, but when asked to sign a statement approving their rebellion, she would not. Indeed, for years, Juana had refused to sign papers of any kind, and she would never sign any for the rebels. She was almost fully out of touch with reality. At one pathetic moment, she said to her interrogator, quote, believe me, all they tell me and all I see seems to me a dream, end quote. At this point, Adrian was reduced almost to despair, writing to Charles, quote, as to the affairs of this realm, they are apparently going to total ruin if God lay on his hands specifically to the remedy and the quieting of them, end quote. But Adrian was not a man of war. He had not taken the measure of the iron, tenacity, in battle of Spaniards committed to a cause. The rebels had some of that, but this was still Queen Isabel's Spain. It had been only 16 years since her death, and it was monarchist to the core. The loyalists needed only a leader. When Constable Velasco's life and the lives of his family were threatened and he was besieged for two days in his home in Burgos, the famous Casa del Cordon, where Isabel and Ferdinand had received Columbus in 1497, where Juan and Charles' Aunt Margaret had been married, and where Charles's father, Philip, had died, Velasco made up his mind to do his duty as the designated chief defender of the kingdom. Informed a few days later that Charles had appointed him co-regent with Cardinal Adrian, who was now imprisoned in Beatelein, Velasco responded with a great surge of loyalty and commitment. When in October Cardinal Adrian escaped from Big Adelaide by climbing over a wall and riding away on a mule, it does not seem that any vigorous attempt was made to bring him back. By November first, Constable Velasco had won back his home city of Burgos. On December first, his son carried Tordesillas by storm and regained possession of Queen Juana. Of by January <coughs> By January 1520, the rebels were beginning to divide. The more responsible among them were horrified by the actions of Bishop Antonio de Acuna Acuna of Zamora, who had descended on the town of Magath between Burgos and Valladolid and totally destroyed it after going to its church and taking all objects of value in it, including a robe which had adorned an image of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Even in Toledo, Voices were being raised against continuing revolt and were not silenced when the council sent Bishop Acunin to keep the city under its control. On February 15th, the renegade bishop plundered the churches of Valladolid to get money to pay his army, taking, quote, chalices, patents, tabernacles, and censers of silver and dividing them among the soldiers and cavaliers who went through the streets sensing and singing with the tabernacles, end quote. As the Republicans found out in the Spanish Civil War in 1936, it's very dangerous to do this sort of thing in Catholic Spain. And this was 1520, more than 400 years closer to Christ. In mid-February, a decree of Charles was published in Burgos condemning 249 leaders of the rebellion for treason. On February 20th, there was rioting in Valladolid between those who wanted to make peace with the king and those who wanted to continue the rebellion. On March 10th, Pedro Lasso de la Vega, a Toledan who was president of the Royal Council, changed sides and declared his support for Charles. A few days later, the revolutionary Bishop Acuna was defeated in battle at Ocana, with 600 of his men killed. On Good Friday, Bishop Acuna rode into Toledo fully armed. A crowd of his followers proclaimed him archbishop and primate of Spain, but the cathedral chapter in Toledo was supposed by canon law to elect him. The chapter arrogantly refused, his members crying out to the menacing crowd a typically Spanish defiance. We have already swallowed death. Do what you will. On April 22nd, Constable Velasco reviewed a now imposing royal army of 6,000 foot and 2,400 horse, and with it he triumphantly crushed the rebellion at the Battle of Villar the next day, which was is Queen Isabel's birthday, at almost the very moment when Charles was confronting Luther face-to-face at the Diet of Worms in Germany, a stand which, when the Spanish people came to know of it, enshrined his place in their hearts forever. On April 18, 1521, came the hour of decision. Emperor Charles summoned Martin Luther to face him at the German city of Worms. The two men confronted each other. They saw each other for the first time on April 17, the day before. But Charles, one look was enough. This little monk will never make a heretic out of me, he declared emphatically to his escort. Charles demanded that Luther recant his errors. Luther squared his soldier's shoulders, set his face looked emperor charles in the eye and said quote if then your majesty and rulers ask for a simple answer i will give it without horns and without teeth as follows unless i am shown my testimony of scripture and evident reasoning i do not accept the authority of popes and councils alone because it is established they have often heard and contradicted himself which by the way is a lie Unless I am overcome by means of the scriptural passages I have cited, unless my conscience is being taken captive by the word of God, I am neither able nor willing to revoke anything, since to act against conscience is neither safe nor honest. God help me. Amen. The dialogue was at an end, at least for that day. The crowd screamed out, many cheering Luther, who raised his arms and swung them in the German signal of victory, shouting, I've come through, I've come through. But some Spaniards in the courtyard of the palace, where the confrontation had taken place, watching him go, cried, to the flames. Spanish Catholic soldiers were to meet Lutheran Germans on the battlefield for the next 127 years, as they fought out the irreconcilable division made clear this day. And after a child who had adopted Spain, it's his country, Now the full magnitude of the challenge he faced and the duty he bore. That very night, Charles wrote out in his own hand, in French, one of the two languages he had first learned as a child in Belgium, his own declaration to counter Luther's. It was read in the diet the next morning at 8 o'clock. Though not nearly so well known as Luther's statement, it deserves to be known and remembered. No more eloquent, impassioned, heartfelt words were ever spoken by a ruling sovereign at a turning point in history. Quote, you know that I am born of the most Christian emperors of the noble German nation, of the Catholic kings of Spain, the Archdukes of Austria, the Dukes of Burgundy, who were all to the death true sons of the Roman Church, defenders of the Catholic faith, of the sacred customs, decrees, and uses of its worship who had bequeathed all this to me as my heritage, and according to whose example I have hitherto lived. Therefore I am determined to hold fast to all that has happened since the Council Council of Constance, for it is certain that a single monk must err if he stands against the opinion of all Christendom, otherwise Christendom itself would have erred for more than a thousand years. That argument still applies, any part of you you want to use it. Therefore, I am determined to set my kingdoms and dominions, my friends, my body, my my life, and my soul upon it. For it were a great shame to us and to you, members of the most noble German nation, if in our time, through our negligence, we were to let even the appearance of heresy and denigration of the true religion enter the hearts of men. You all heard Luther's speech here yesterday. Now I say to you that I regret that I have delayed so long to proceed against him. I will not hear him again. He has his safe conduct. From now on I regard him as a notorious heretic and hope that you all, as good Christians, will not be wanting in your duty." When Charles was born a potential heir to the kingdom of Spain, Queen Isabel said of him prophetically, The lot falls on Matthias. Matthias was the last apostle chosen by Locke to replace the traitor Judas. Christ had had charged his apostles to bring his new doctrine to all nations. Charles was to bring it to nations and peoples Apostle Matthias had never dreamed of. It was Charles who sent Hernan Cortez to smash the satanic empire of Aztec Mexico, built on human sacrifice, making it a place which the Mother of God could visit as Our Lady of Guadalupe. It was Charles who sent Magellan and his men to make the first voyage around the world. And it was Charles who saved Christendom, almost single.